0: Welcome back to our study of 1 Kings. We'll be looking this time at 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where we see David's parting words to Solomon. The parting words are powerful and precious. We treasure the last words of family members and famous leaders. At times we even think about the last words we would like to say to those that we love if we were in a situation where we thought we might not have another chance to speak to them or might not see them again. Uh, we don't always get that chance, but a final charge or blessing is something that the Bible models for us as a part of what it looks like to die well when we have the opportunity uh, to speak those kinds of words, uh, especially to those closest to us. And um, so if you look in... at Examples of that in the Bible, you see Jacob blessing his 12 sons uh, just before he dies at the end of the book of Genesis. You see uh, Moses delivering his final words to the people of Israel. Really, the whole book of Deuteronomy functions that way in a bit, but especially Deuteronomy 33 includes the, the last words of Moses to the nation of Israel. And again, as I said, we'll see some of David's last words to Solomon. Now, David gets two shots at this. At the end of Second Samuel, in Second Samuel chapter twenty-three, there's a psalm that we're told are the, that we're told is the the last words of David. And then also here in First Kings chapter two, we get David's parting words. To his son Solomon. So let's look at these words together and talk about what they mean, and what we can learn from them. So 1 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, of course, reading from the ESV says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with, with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite and let them be among those who eat at your table for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother and there is also with you Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Bahurim who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim but when I came down to meet uh, when he came down to meet me at the Jordan I swore to him by the Lord saying I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was forty years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and thirty-three years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, And his kingdom was firmly established. So in chapter 1, we saw that David was growing old and weak. And his son Adonijah tried to seize the throne, perhaps thinking that his father wouldn't do anything about it. But David had already promised that Solomon would be the one to succeed him on the throne. And so when David was made aware by Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan that Adonijah was attempting to take the throne for himself, instead david secured solomon as the uh, heir to his throne to his kingdom and solomon was anointed and made king and so now we see in chapter 2 that david uh, becomes aware that he is about to die verse 1 says when david's time drew near the time to die drew near he commanded solomon his son saying I am about to go the way of all the earth. So uh, death is a universal human experience. It's not a part of God's original creation. It's not the way it was designed to be, but it is the way that it is for all of us. Uh, There are just two exceptions in the Bible of people who didn't experience a normal physical death, or at least didn't seem to. Um, And those are Enoch and Elijah, both who were uh, taken up to be with the Lord but um david says look this is this is what happens to everybody. This is the way of all the earth, and this is what's going to happen to me. I'm about to die so uh David has uh, what in a sense is is a privilege and a blessing of knowing that his days are drawing to an end, and that gives him the opportunity uh to speak some powerful parting words into the life of his son Solomon, who is not only his son. But again, his successor, his heir, the one who is going to um, take over or has taken over the kingdom in David's stead. So um, whenever you read words like this in the Bible, whether it's David's last words or Moses's or Jacob's, um, it's, it's good for us to think about what kinds of things would we want people to hear from us if we knew we had one last chance to say something to them. Um, How would we want to encourage them? How would we want to speak life into them? How would we want to bless them? How would we want to point them back uh, to the ways of the Lord? So that's what David is going to do for Solomon here. So he gives him a charge, starting in the middle of verse 2 through verse 4, he gives him a charge to be strong and to be faithful to the Lord, to keep the Lord's word. He says, uh, be strong, middle of verse two, and show yourself a man. So you're going to be king and you're going to have hardships and enemies and opposition and challenges beyond what most people face in a normal lifetime. And you cannot afford to be weak or lazy or indifferent. You need to be strong. You need to be um, uh, a leader. You need to be active. And so he charges Solomon to be strong and to act like a man. Show himself a man. And then he says, verse 3, And keep the charge of the Lord your God. So God has given you certain things that you are supposed to do and you need to do them. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. In other words, do the things that God has spoken walk according to the commandments God has given us in his word. Keep the law of Moses, which was um, the bulk of at least what God had revealed to his people at that time, uh, would have been found in the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, Perhaps they would have had Joshua uh, by that time, maybe Judges. Um, But most of what they have at that point is uh, what we call the books of Moses. And so he says, um, keep, keep the law, keep the word of the Lord, do what God has said. And look at why verse four, that the Lord may, excuse me, uh, in verse three, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So you want to prosper. You want your reign to flourish. You want your kingdom, uh, to be, uh, on a firm footing, and in order for that to happen, you need to be doing what God says. If you live and walk contrary to God's words and ways, you can expect things not to go well with you. But if you will live according to God's words and and ways, then he will prosper you. He will bless you. Doesn't mean you'll have no conflict. Doesn't mean that everything will go smoothly. But it does mean his hand will be upon you for good. And this is the same kind of thing we read in Psalm 1, uh, which uh, says, not only um, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but... It also says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and then catch this, in all that he does, he prospers. So this is the clear teaching of the Bible, not just here in this verse, but also in Psalm 1, and you can find the same idea in other places, that God will prosper those who keep his word and it's not the same as the health, wealth, prosperity people who say if you just claim this promise, if you just give this much money whatever then God is going to prosper you meaning he's going to fill your bank account and give you expensive things and all that kind of stuff no, 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 no. It means that God will be with you; that He will be working on your behalf for good. You may still experience extreme trials, sorrows, heartaches, difficulties, sufferings, but you can know that God will be at work in your life, ultimately to bring all things to good. He's gonna, He's gonna prosper you, right? Um, in that sense, in the in the truly biblical sense, not in the you know, American health and wealth kind of sense. All right, so he'll prosper you, he'll bless you. Um, And then he says also, verse four, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now, we mentioned last time, just briefly, how important for all of this story and really for everything in the new in the old testament from this point forward and for much of what is in the new testament it is really 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 important that we know and understand the promise that god made to david that god promised david in second samuel chapter 7 that he would establish his house his kingdom with one of david's sons on his throne reigning forever. That promise, of course, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That's why the angel told Mary um, that her, the child that she was going to give birth to, the Messiah, uh, would sit on the throne of his father, David, forever. But um, So it's looking forward to Jesus, but it's also a promise that is sort of undergirding the people's hope all throughout the Old Testament, um, and it's a promise that is partially fulfilled in Solomon, who is David's son, who's going to sit on David's throne. Now, um, David says to Solomon, look, God made this promise to me um, that I would have one of my sons reigning on on my throne forever and at the kingdom uh, that he began with me uh, or or set in place with me would be established, but you cannot presume on that promise because part of the deal is you've got to obey, you've got to be faithful, um, and uh, this. Uh, particular reference to uh, the sons, uh, if your sons pay close attention to their way, it doesn't actually come from Second Samuel 7, but comes from Psalm 132, verse 12, which is reflecting on the promise uh, God made to David and sort of expounding it a little bit more for us. You can probably get this idea uh, implied from Second Samuel chapter 7 but uh, this wording uh, right here comes from Psalm 132, verse 12. So David's saying, look, you've got to be faithful because God has made this really great promise to us, um, but part of the deal is you've got to do what God says. In other words, if Solomon just decides to do whatever he wants and not live according to God's word or God's ways, um, then that could spell disaster at a minimum, for Solomon um, and could also jeopardize um, what's going on with the house of David. Now, of course, it's not going to bring it in to God's promise. God always finds a way to keep his promises even when his people are unfaithful and don't hold up their end of the deal. But um, they might have to suffer the consequences um, in the meantime, um, maybe even long term. So um, part of the um, irony about these verses is that we know, and the author of First Kings knew as he was writing this and knew that those who heard or read this book uh, would know that Solomon is not going to do this right in in significant ways, like his father David, he is going to be faithful to the Lord, but also like David in at least one really significant way, he is going to fail. And he is going to fail to keep God's command. He's going to fail to live according to God's way. And that is going to bring disaster upon the house of David, um, as we'll see as the story goes on. So um, David gives this uh, charge to his son Solomon to keep the Lord's word, to be faithful, to be strong, etc., Then in verses five through nine, David uh, tells Solomon how to deal with a few individuals who um, either did evil toward David or those who were aligned with David or who did good toward David during his lifetime and how Solomon should respond to them. Now, before we, before we dig into these verses, I think it's important to, to make something really clear. In the Old Testament, especially at this point when David's on the throne, in the Old Testament, there is a sense in which um, the politics of the Old Testament are tied to the house of David because David's line was the line of the Messiah, the line that God had promised to bless, the line that God had promised to establish, the line that God had promised to send the Messiah through. So that meant that there was a sense in which when somebody like Absalom or Adonijah rebelled against David and tried to take his throne from him, they were not Simply sinning against David, they were also rebelling against the Lord because David was the Lord's anointed king. David was the one God had chosen to sit upon the throne, and God had made promises, a promise to David to establish his kingdom, his throne forever. And so when some tried to take that throne for themselves, or they opposed David as king or whatever, there was a sense in which they were not just rebelling against David, they were also rebelling against God because of what God had done for and through David and what God had promised to David. Now, at that time, of course, the kingdom of God was manifested only imperfectly but truly in David and his obedient sons. And the kingdom was obscured uh, by the faithless sons of David. Right? So there's a sense in which in the Old Testament, when we see the kingdom of David through David and his sons, in a sense, that's, that's supposed to be the kingdom of God. This is the reign that God has established upon the earth to bless all uh, the earth through them right now again it's done in, imperfectly not because God is doing something imperfect but because he's using men who are imperfect some of them who rebel and sin and, and whatnot so I'm not saying that everything that David or any of his sons do ha- comes with the authorization of God that that's not true right because oftentimes they do exactly what God does not want them to do but In principle, they are representing God, representing God's reign upon the earth, just like Adam was supposed to do in the garden when he was given dominion over the earth. Okay, so that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. But since the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God is no longer tied to a particular political party or regime upon the earth. It is tied to the heavenly king, Jesus, whose rule, whose kingdom is made visible on the earth through the church, through believers, that he is at work um, saving people, changing people, transforming people. His kingdom has come in part, will come in fullness at his return with the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. But there is no earthly political um person or party who we are all obligated to follow or to um obey ultimately right I remember what Jesus said to Pilate My kingdom is not of this world I I'm not in charge of an earthly political kingdom at this point, right? Um, And so that means there's no party, no politician, no political movement, no dynasty upon the earth that Christians are all obligated to support with their voice or their vote at all times. Now, the Bible does make clear that we should submit to the governing authorities. We ought to obey those God has put in authority over us. That is true. The only exception to that is when those authorities try to take the place of God, and tell us not to do something God has commanded us to do, or tell us uh, tells us to do something God has commanded us not to do. As long as they are not calling upon us to sin against God, to disobey God, then we are obligated to submit to them, and we are always obligated to pray for them. But Do not let anybody persuade you, and please don't try to persuade anybody else, that if you are a Christian, you must vote for this party or this person, or you must support this political thing, that political thing. Um, There are some things that all Christians should be for and that all Christians should be against, but when it comes to uh, being tied to a particular party or a particular dynasty or whatever— There there's our our only King is Jesus. The only clear, absolute allegiance that should be pressed upon every believer is allegiance to King Jesus. Outside of that, we're gonna disagree on some things, and that doesn't automatically mean that we are sinning or rebelling against God. Okay? So that's different the reason I bring that up is because that's different than it was in the old testament. In the old testament Uh, under the reign of the kings of David, you are obligated to support them um, and be on their side because that is the person, the kingdom, the house through whom God was working on the earth. That's not true of any modern political movements or nations or parties or whatever, because Jesus is the king. Jesus has come and set up the kingdom on the earth, and Jesus himself is at work on the earth and we are our allegiances to him. All right. Um, so uh, with that caveat in place, right? look at what David says, uh, tell Solomon to do. He, verse five, he tells him to deal with Joab, the son of Zeruiah. He, he says, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. All right, there's a pretty serious backstory here that you can find um, in Second Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3 where um, when David became king, he at first was only king over the house of Judah, and uh, the house of Saul and the rest of Israel was uh, not uh, aligned with David, at least not as a whole. And um, so <clears throat> this man, uh, Abner, had been the commander of, of Saul's army, and, um, when it became, well, there was a conflict in the house of Saul. And so Abner said, well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to defect to David. I'm going to help bring, uh, all of Israel over to David's side. And so he told David that and he came to meet with David. And, uh, when David sent him away in peace, Joab came back from, I think some kind of battle or something and heard that Abner had been there and that David had let him go in peace. And so Abner tracked him down. And sort of lured him and uh, murdered him uh, out of nowhere. Now, the reason he did that is because Abner had killed Joab's brother in battle back in Second Samuel chapter two. But now there was no war going on. This was a time of peace. He had just made an alliance with David, and yet Joab uh, shed his blood. So this is not, uh, you know, killing an enemy in battle. This was this was murder. All right, as, as David says, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. Now, David didn't do anything about it, but he's calling upon his son Solomon to make sure this crime is punished, to not let Joab go down in peace to Sheol, uh, down to the grave or to you know the place of the dead or whatever. Um, don't let that happen because of the way that he sinned. Uh, against Abner and, and again, really against David. Um, So that's, so he gives the instructions about Joab. And then he says something positive, show loyalty to the sons of Barzillai. And uh, the reason for this is because uh, Barzillai was a man when David was running from Solomon. So when his own son, Solomon, sorry, not Solomon, Absalom, When David's own son Absalom was not being loyal to him, um, but was trying to take over the throne and David had to flee Jerusalem, Barzillai, as well as some others, met David and brought them supplies and food to help take care of them. And so David says here, he says, "...deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite and let them be among those who eat at your table." For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So when I was being uh, treated with a lack of loyalty by my own son, this man Barzillai was loyal to me. And so I want you to continue to be loyal to the members of his household. Let them be among your court, the people who eat at your table. And then uh, he gives instructions about one more person that needs uh, to be put to death in some way, verse eight and nine. This man named Shimei. This also comes from the time when Absalom uh, was trying to take over David's kingdom, and David had to flee. It says, "There is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim." But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, "I will not put you to death with the sword." So, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei was cursing him, um, and um, Shimei had been a member of the house was a member of the house of Saul, and uh, he was saying all kinds of terrible things against David when he was fleeing. Um, but David later um, said that he would not put him to death. But now he says to Solomon, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So um, I gave him an extended uh, season of mercy, but he does need to be punished, is essentially what David's saying. And so he leaves all that for Solomon to do. Here are the things you need to do here at the beginning of the establishment of your kingdom. And then uh, finally in verses 10 to 12, we're told of Solomon's death. Verse 10, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Uh, Verse 11 tells us about his reign. The time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Uh, He reigned seven years in Hebron. That's when he was reigning only over Judah and 33 years in Jerusalem. uh, That's when he was reigning over uh, the whole nation of Israel. Um, and then verse 12 says, so Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established, which reminds us of that promise that God made to David, right? That God would establish his kingdom forever. There's a sense in which that promise is being fulfilled. Even now in this verse, it says, as David establishes, uh, the kingdom of Solomon. So Two major things for us to remember from these verses. Um, One is to remember remember how significant the promises to David are, not only for understanding the Bible, but for understanding what God is up to in the world. Jesus is the son of David, seated on David's throne, ruling and reigning over all of the world, even now in fulfillment of promises God made to David a thousand years before Jesus was born. So these promises are significant. Second is to remember that um, all of us, uh, unless Jesus comes back first, we are all going to face the time of our own death. And we want to be prepared for that. Sometimes uh, that day takes us by complete surprise, and there's very little we can do to to be prepared. Prepared in terms of what we would say to people, we don 't have a chance to really say goodbye or give a final charge, but if we are given an opportunity to do something like that it 's good for us to think about what would we want our legacy to be? What would we want people to hear from us if we had one last chance to tell them something? Um, would we like David uh, point them to the Lord and to his word and encourage them and charge them to be faithful? Um, I hope that's what I would do. I hope that's what you would do. It's good for us to think about and prepare for those things, uh, knowing that one day, um, that day is going to come. And uh, hopefully we will be prepared not only um, to meet the Lord, because we've trusted in Christ, but also to encourage those uh, left behind to continue to follow him.